0: reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado.
1: Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from nineteen ninety nine. Polos from sixteen ninety nine. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. You are listening to On the Daily, the RotoViz Daily Fantasy Sports Podcast, powered by RotoViz Radio.
2: Hey everyone, I'm Matt Freeman, Matt F. The Oracle of the Action Network in RotoViz. Welcome to the July 13th, 2018 NASCAR edition of On the Daily. I'm joined by Dr. Nick Giffen, an owner of RotoViz, a PhD in mathematics, a three time qualifier for the DraftKings NASCAR main event, and one of the best NASCAR DFS players in the world. You can follow him on Twitter at Rotodoc. Nick, how's it going?
0: i'm doing great matt uh i feel like it's been forever since we've seen each other
2: (laughs) that is funny yes so um for everyone who's not in on the joke uh nick and i have actually never met each other before until this last week um i was in vegas for the gambling olympics uh covering it for the action network uh so uh i hung out
1: they call you the grill master you've seared the thickest porterhouse in the butcher shop
2: Had some beers. It was a good time. Um, it, yeah, I mean, it was. It was, it's, it was long overdue for us finally to uh, to see each other in person.
0: Yeah, I agree. And uh, the funny thing is, obviously, we've known each other even longer than the podcast through road of his football stuff, uh, yeah. fantasy football stuff. So. It's really been probably like almost four years in the making, but uh finally happened and I had a great time and uh it sounds like you had a pretty interesting weekend as well.
2: Yeah, it was it was a good time being there. Uh I am very glad it's over. <laughs> I, I didn't get much sleep there.
0: Uh yeah, know, come, yeah. Come, come and I think that's line. obviously yeah. that's uh, obviously why we didn't uh one of the reasons we didn't have a pod this past weekend for Daytona was uh you were busy, I was busy. Um I obviously I had a I had a road trip myself. I was uh, in Portland, Oregon, visiting my sister, so that was a good time. But uh, just with the clashing schedules, we didn't get the pod out last weekend.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, we are now back on schedule. Uh, let's talk about last week first. Uh, it was Daytona. The last two weekends, you've been highly profitable, uh, and we haven't had podcasts the last two weekends, right?
0: Am I, make, am we, I making that we up? We had a pod before Chicagoland, but yeah. uh, we didn't get the to- about half an after Chicagoland.
2: Yeah, that's right. So I was thinking, um, you know, maybe we should just stop doing the podcast because you're at, you're at your best when, when you don't have to spend a couple hours talking to me. But uh, so well,
0: what, I, might, I, might, I might correlate with my travel. All three weekends I've traveled this year have been my three most profitable weekends.
2: There you go. We're going to need to send you on the road every weekend. Um, okay. So the last two weekends you've been highly profitable. You won the largest GPP for Chicagoland. Uh, And then you followed it up with the second place finish in uh, the $180 buy-in GPP for Daytona. Can you talk about your strategy for each race and uh, some of the things that DFS players can take away from those two races?
0: Yeah, definitely. So I used obviously very different strategies for both GPPs because Chicagoland and Daytona are nothing alike. Uh, Chicagoland is, if you remember the pod from two weeks ago, was our most predictable track of the whole year and that stood up uh true again this year the the final model r squared so when i gave the model out of sample r squared two weekends ago at chicagoland you know before the race happened i said it was around 0.75 turns out the actual r squared for my model and the race results was 0.74 so almost in line with exactly what the model predicted uh in terms of its predictability so when you had a Highly predictable race like Chicagoland with a very low DNF rate. And then you combine it with the fact that we had four drivers get sent to the back because they failed inspection for qualifying. Uh, It made for a really chalky weekend. So my strategy um, for the the largest GPP, uh, I think it was a $250,000 GPP with um, maybe 50K to first. I can't quite remember the details, but uh, because it was split so many ways among a chalky lineup – I would have only made $2,000, but instead, my strategy was uh, to take 30 lineups. Well, I I ended up doing 31. Originally, I was going to do 30 lineups and enter each of them five times uh, because I figured uh, what we've talked about a lot of the time is when you have a lot of the the drivers going to the back, a cash game lineup very often caches in GPPs, and that happened again this weekend. The cash game lineup I would have used, which is the one I actually entered the most into the large GPP, cached, but... Then I did some variations off of the cash lineup. I did 30 variations off of that cash lineup, uh, and basically entered each lineup five times. It wasn't exactly that I entered 28 lineups, five times. Uh, I entered my, what would have been my cash lineup six times. And then two other lineups I entered twice and they were kind of like my GPP ish lineups. Uh, one of those lineups, I actually entered into the qualifier as well. I entered a $15 qualifier just to kind of throw it in there and do something different. But, uh, yeah, so one of my lineups that was five x ended up hitting for the large GPP, and I think it made a lot of sense. I mean, you got the highest predictable track all year with the lowest DMF rate all year, with the qualifying drivers going, you know, four chalky drivers going to the back, uh, and we know cash game lineups do well in that scenario. Made for just like play your chalk, and so I figured if one of these lineups won a GPP. I'd obviously be splitting it many, many ways. So why not just 5X every lineup? And I actually tweeted it out about 30 minutes before lock that that was my strategy. Uh, maybe about an hour or 30 minutes before lock that that was going to be my strategy. Uh, and it ended up working out very well. Um, there were minimal you know, issues throughout the race. And, uh, yeah, it ended up working out pretty well. Uh, I did get a little bit lucky, obviously. Clint Boyer um, had, like, three penalties in a row. Uh, all in, like – so he – he sped on pit road he came back down pit road to serve his speeding penalty, and he got another speeding penalty. then he came back down pit road really slowly and he was supposed to do a stop and go this time instead of just a drive through and he didn't stop in the pit, so he got another penalty for not stopping, so he had to come down pit Road a fourth time, so three penalties uh for for Clint Boyer after he was leading the race and that was like you know the little bit of luck I had there um because I didn't have much clint Boyer so Worked out well in that regard, but that was really early in the race. And and it's funny, Boyer still ended up finishing fifth after going two and a half laps down or something like that. Uh, So their team benefited from a timely caution and and got back on the lead lap. But, uh, you know, you obviously need a little luck to win a GPP, but I still think good strategy ended up playing out there. As far as Daytona, uh, that's the second least predictable track we have. The only less predictable track is the other restrictor played at Talladega. Uh, And I know the Daytona night race very often has a lot of crashes. Uh, Drivers were saying it was going to be a wild race, and it turns out it was. And the tried and true restrictor plate strategy of picking drivers in the back ended up working out. The first two restrictor plate races this year were somewhat of an anomaly. Talladega especially uh, with drivers inside. I think it was the top 15 ended up in the optimal lineup. Almost never happens Uh, this time uh, you know, the tried and true strategy of picking drivers in the back, leveraging ownership percentage worked out. Uh, I actually got a little unlucky here. I mean, obviously I got lucky because of the crashes, but that's stuff you plan for. I got a little unlucky in the second to last restart. Uh, there was like two laps to go. I think it was a green, white checkered and I was leading the GPP for hundred thousand dollars. I was the sole person leading the GPP at that point earlier, uh, in the race, just maybe the restart before that, actually, I was tied for first with Anthony Amico, another road of his uh, NFL writer who occasionally throws in some lineups on, on restricted play races because he knows the strategy here as well. Um, but uh, I had a sole lineup leading with the second to last restart, and I had double Wallace and Clint Boyer, and they were pushing each other to the front in that lineup. So I was actually going to finish even higher, Not I mean, not higher, but like separate myself from second place even more. And unfortunately, Bubba ended up turning Clint Boyer with that push. He didn't mean to, obviously, and uh, so that crashed out that lineup. There was one final restart, and uh, you know my my top lineups ended up going down a little bit. But I still won or finished second, I should say, in the $180 GPP with with the tried and true strategy. So, as far as what DFS players can learn. I mean, especially with Daytona, the tried and true strategy works just because we saw an anomalous result or, or maybe even two anomalous results, not really with the 500, Daytona 500, but the Talladega result was kind of anomalous, doesn't mean you should overreact to that. So uh, you still want to use a larger sample size of races other than the first two races, you know, restrictor plate races, or especially Talladega, the first race that happened this year as your prior. You should be using a larger sample size as your prior basis, and that's why I built my model off a larger sample size of races. Uh, as far as Chicagoland, I think what we learned is uh, just the same stuff keeps happening. Obviously, with a large sample size of, of, you know, times where drivers have been going to the back for failed inspection, Time and time and time again, the cash game lineup is caching, so I recommend building cash game type lineups and uh, throwing those in GPPs. You don't have to just play your cash game lineup in GPPs, but build a cash game lineup, build some variations off of it, and usually it'll do pretty well in GPPs.
2: Okay, let's get to this weekend's race. It is at Kentucky, which is a one-and-a-half-mile tri-oval It was repaved and reconfigured in 2016. Can you talk about the track and what we should expect to see from it in its current form?
0: Yeah, so you mentioned the repave and that was and the reconfiguration. That was because Kentucky was experiencing some weepers in the 2015 race. So, you know, the cracks that were open up in the track and water was seeping up through the surface, making it unraceable or causing a long delays. So what they did is they changed the banking in turns one and two. So the turns one and two banking is different from the turns three and four banking, uh, which is similar to what we see at Texas Motor Speedway when they had their repave and reconfiguration. So you got different levels of banking in one and two and three and four, uh, and it is a relatively newer surface. So, um, you know, they did the same thing that they did at Texas where they tried to kind of age, cure the track, so to speak, and give it kind of a five-year age. But even then, it's a much newer track than most of the other one-and-a-half-mile ovals that we have on – basically all of the other one-and-a-half-mile ovals we have uh, on the circuit except Texas. So uh, what we can expect in Kentucky, uh, you know, less tire wear than at most races – It's it's, uh other than that, it's kind of your standard mile-and-a-half oval, but it is, of course, a night race, so you can expect speeds to be a little higher, cars to be a little more on the aerodynamic edge because temperatures tend to be cooler at night. You get a little more grip, uh, but that also puts the car more on the aerodynamic edge. So with more grip, a newer surface will also create more grip. Uh, You can expect a lot of grip uh, in the tires at this track, meaning cars will be on the aerodynamic edge for sure. It makes passing harder. But uh, it also puts the cars on, on the verge of, of crashing at some time. And so we can see some wrecks at Kentucky for sure, especially because, you know, it's a night race.
2: Okay. Uh, just a reminder, for people who are interested in doing more research on the the, uh, the track at Kentucky, you can do all of that at roto And, of course, you can get a 30% discount to a special NASCAR pass through the NASCAR podcast homepage, rotoviz.com slash podcast. With that pass, you get unlimited access to all of Nick's premium NASCAR content. And, of course, the tools and your subscription supports the pod. Nick, you mentioned Texas Motor Speedway, uh, another track that was repaved and recon- reconfigured. Uh, that was in 2017. How does Texas and Kentucky, uh, how do they compare to each other? And can DFS players use Texas to uh, to get some sense of what might happen at Kentucky?
0: Yeah, so uh, kind of... The, the big difference between Texas and Kentucky, well, there's two kind of big differences, air quote big. Um, the first is that at Kentucky, uh, turns one and two are higher bank than turns three and four, whereas in Texas, turns one and two are lower bank than turns three and four. So the, the banking differential shifted between one and two versus three and four. Uh, also, Texas is a little higher banked just overall. Uh, the lower banked of the two corners is 20, and the higher is 24 in Texas, whereas at Kentucky, it's 14 and 17. So higher banked at Texas, um, that'll produce higher speeds, for example. But the other difference, uh, it, it just all things being equal, it'll produce higher speeds at Texas. But the other difference is Texas, in since 2017 and then the race this year, both 2017 races and this year's 2018 race so far, All have been during the daytime, whereas the two Kentucky races, the one in 2016 and the one in 2017, uh, have all been at night. So that's the other major difference, is that Kentucky's been a night race, Texas has been a day race. And uh, what that's kind of done is it's—the difference between the two tracks is it's changed the DNF rate. Kentucky has a significantly higher DNF rate than Texas. Uh, If you look at at Kentucky's DNF rate, it's 27.5% in the two races— Uh, since it's been reconfigured you look at Texas's it's around 10% so um, you know around 10-12% depending on how you splice the data if you want to include the first race or not but Um, so Texas is, is got a lower DNF rate. It's during the day and it makes sense. It's warmer temperatures, especially in Texas where it can get pretty hot down there. Uh, you get less grip and, and the cars slide around more. When that happens, you have to go slower. You don't have as much grip. So the cars aren't in the aerodynamic edge as much, uh, night racing can produce some wrecks because of the higher speeds, uh, you know, the more being more on the aerodynamic edge, for example. Uh, and I think that's the main reason for the difference. So that 27.5% DNF rate at Kentucky is kind of interesting. There's been two races, and in both races, uh, there's been 40 drivers that have started and 11 drivers have had major incidents. So I shouldn't say DNF rate, but incident rate. Uh, both cases, 11 of the 40 drivers had major incidents. Uh, so, you know, I think we can expect... Compared to the other mile-and-a-half ovals this year, uh, maybe a little bit higher DNF rate at Kentucky. That would be kind of our prior just based off of the two races we've had since the repave. And knowing what we know about about night races, it could be a little bit higher DNF rate than Texas. So uh, as other than the DNF rate, the statistics for predicting finishing position are actually kind of similar. So I think that's where the similarities to the two come into play is of the cars that do finish – you can expect uh, similar statistics to go into the model into predicting driver performance, but uh, sometimes drivers can go over the edge more at Kentucky than at Texas.
1: Hey, sports fans, football season's here, and it's time to get in on the action with my bookie. Terms and conditions apply for entertainment purposes only. Void where prohibited.
2: That 27.5 uh, incident rate seems pretty high for a 1.5-mile
0: tri-oval. Uh, do you have any thoughts on why it is so high? Um, yeah, it even it even seems high for like a night race. You know, Kansas has had some night races, and it hasn't been quite as high. Although there definitely have been incidents at the night race in Kansas, it's more around 20 to 22%. My guess is it's just a little bit of you know small sample size. I think if we ran Kentucky a lot of times, uh, it would be closer more to the mile-and-a-half night race DNF rate uh, of around 20%, 18%, 22% in that ballpark in the long run. So I'm certainly going to be high, maybe a little bit on the high side, but that is all the prior we have for Kentucky, a very small sample size. So you can put some pretty big error bars around that. uh, And I'd I'd probably regress that prior a little bit towards just the overall mile and a half night race DNF rate or incident rate uh, of around 20%. So you know, even if it's, if, even if it's 20%, that's still pretty significant. I mean, you've got 39 cars entered this weekend. Let's just round it to 40. That's like eight cars you can expect to have major incidents. Uh, probably even more given the fact that we've seen it's, it's maybe closer to 22 or 25 or 27 and a half percent, uh, could be the the true long-term incident rate here at Kentucky. So, um, yeah, I I think it's, I think it's a little bit of small sample size in terms of reasons so high, but I do think a lot of it is just the fact that it's a night race, uh, which which does put cars more in the aerodynamic edge, and especially Kentucky with a newer track surface, you're also going to have more grip, which will make cars go even faster. So if you look at like, uh, you know, some of the the single lap speeds in final practice, I mean, you got Eric Jones going 187.75 miles an hour, and obviously that's in qualifying trim. But still, it gives you an idea of the speed. For a lower banked track like Kentucky, that's pretty darn high. So, um, yeah, I think uh, that's the reason.
2: Okay. Uh, as you mentioned, Kentucky is a night race. It is tomorrow night. Uh, so the schedule for this weekend is going to be a little bit different. Uh, can
0: you talk about the content schedule? Yeah. So um, we're qualifying is, is basically going to happen right after we finish recording this. And, uh, so after qualifying, I'm just going to get right to work on everything, getting the article out, getting the model updated, uh, Getting the apps updated and uh, just, you know, ownership percentage uh, will probably come out in the morning would be my guess just because I like to get uh, as much information as I can from around the industry to, to update my ownership percentage model. So expect ownership percentage in the morning, but everything else in the model to come out uh, late this evening, you know, Pacific time, uh, if not a little bit earlier, you know, the article I like to get out as soon as possible. So probably within one to two hours after qualifying, the article will be out. Uh, then after that, I'll work on updating the apps. Uh, I'll get the Action Network article, betting article, written uh, tonight, and then uh, Saturday morning, I'll update the ownership percentage, and then we'll do Road of His live Saturday, uh, and I'll have it posted to slash live sometime before noon on uh, noon Pacific time, probably even closer to like nine or ten a.m. Pacific time on Saturday morning. Okay, so as you mentioned,
2: uh, we are recording this before qualifying. Both practice sessions for the weekend have already taken place. How should DFS players use practice this weekend, given that both sessions were in the daytime before qualifying, uh, and the race occurs at nighttime?
0: Yeah, uh, that's that's a really good question. I think uh, two things. One, um, you know, you can fade practice times a little bit because obviously the ten lap averages were done during the heat of the day in Kentucky, uh, especially in final practice, they were done right in the heat of the day. And this race is going to be a night race, uh, or at least an evening, you know, twilight race turning into night race. Uh, so obviously, track speeds will be a lot faster. And you know, I said Eric Jones's uh qualifying lap time was 187.75 miles an hour, that was done in the heat of the day. So, you can expect some pretty high speeds during the race. Uh, it does mean you can fade practice times a little bit, but we still want to rely on long run speed. That being said only 15 cars made a 10 lap average in final practice. And uh, if we look at, at practice one, only 10, uh, sorry, only nine cars made a 10 uh, a lap run in opening practice. So not a lot of information on the long run here for uh, drivers this week, long run speed. So uh, don't overemphasize practice times. It is a factor in the model as we will talk about because it, it, it almost always is at one and a half mile tracks. It's good data. Uh, but don't overemphasize practice speeds. Um, excuse me, as, as we'll talk about, you know, the model is not as highly predictive for mile and a half for Kentucky as it is some other mile and a half. So I think, uh, you don't want to overemphasize practice times this weekend. And, uh, knowing that, you know, especially final practice was in the heat of the day, I think it's a good way to, to get a little bit of, uh, you know, GPP, um, differentiation from, from some other people. Now, I think obviously, As we talk about, uh, as we'll talk about, um, you know, some of the front runners are still a little bit more predictable. But I think this is a great weekend for maybe differentiating in the mid or or lower tier type drivers this weekend, uh, especially uh, in terms of maybe avoiding practice times or if drivers are kind of in a practice time tier, uh, maybe pick the one that you think will be lower owned uh, with still a relatively similar expectation, something like that.
2: Okay, so, Nick, your article will be coming out uh, tonight maybe kind of early-ish in the morning hours. After that comes out, for the subscribers to the Road of His NASCAR package, I think they should take the information in that article and then go play some bets at mybookie.ag, where they have a variety of future bets and head-to-head props for each race. I bet those props each week. Uh, I know, as everyone knows, almost nothing about NASCAR, uh, but I'm still able to do pretty good on those props, because of the information and in the articles and the tools. Uh, so you should check out the props. MyBookie, NASCAR, future props. Uh, I love them. You should love them too. Play them. Okay. I, I have more I should be reading here. I'm, I'm losing my train of thought here. Uh, yes, join now and MyBookie will match your deposit with up to a 50% bonus. Use the promo code NASCAR to activate the offer. Again, that is MyBookie.ag okay, Kentucky, 267 laps. Talk about what the dominator strategy should be for Kentucky.
0: Yeah. So 267 laps, that's kind of what we see for most of the mile and a half. There are a few that are, uh, you know, 500 mile races or something like that, but by and large, uh, most of the mile and a half are 267 laps. So Uh, You'd expect there to be similar dominator strategy at Kentucky as most of the other mile-and-a-halfs, and And that pretty much is true. Uh, If we look at the two Kentucky races that we've had, obviously, you know, we haven't – we've only had the two since the the repave reconfiguration. Uh, And we look at the dominators for two races. We had one race with two major dominators and one race with three major dominators, and that's kind of what we say most weekends is, is two seems to be the norm. Sometimes three and occasionally one we've talked about at some of the mile and a half. Now, we've only had two races, so obviously we can't have had a larger sample size of how many will be two dominators, how many will be three, how many will be one. But I think your bulk expectation should be two major dominators leaning towards three with some possible one-dominator possibilities. Now, I think in a night race, it definitely leans more towards the three than the one because of the, the incident rate being just overall higher, meaning more cautions, meaning more different strategies, et cetera. But we really have seen essentially two or three drivers lead each of these races and then basically nobody else lead laps. Uh, So, you know, I think as as far as dominators, you want to take two or three stabs in GPPs. In cash games, it's usually okay to go with one as long as you're pretty sure he's the most likely dominator. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, we look at uh, 2016, I should say, the first race. Kevin Harvick led 48 percent of the laps, which is 128 laps Uh, that that race. Did end up going 267 laps, the full scheduled distance. And then Brad Keselowski led 28% of the laps for 75 laps led. Martin Truex Jr. led 17% of the laps for 46 laps led. But he also had 69 fastest laps. So that definitely boosted him in the fastest lap category, which is even you know more points than laps led. So three major dominators for the 2016 race. 2017 race. It was Truex leading 55% of the laps, uh, 152 of the 274 went into overtime there, uh, and then Kyle Busch leading the basically the rest of the laps, 112, so they combined for 264 of the 274 laps led, so you know the rest was just spread out basically through pit strategy and things like that, but I would say two is kind of the expectation, leaning towards three significantly, and maybe there's just a car that just crushes it and there's only one dominator but I think that's going to be pretty unlikely this weekend so I'd go two towards leaning, you know mostly two some leaning three
2: okay what are the statistics that you are looking at to determine uh the dominators you should be targeting at Kentucky
0: yeah so uh I think it's fortunately it's pretty straightforward and it's kind of like most of the mile and a half ovals starting position so if we look at we talked about two and three dominators for the two races. So that's five total major dominators. Uh, four of them started either first or second. Uh, so both pole sitters and both second place starters were major dominators. And then Truex, who started seventh in 2016, uh, he he ended up dominating. He was the least of the, the dominators. You know, he only led 17.2%, whereas all four of the other dominators between the two races led at least 28% or 75 laps. But He still had a bunch of fastest laps. So uh, you can expect the front row to be pretty dominant early on in the race uh, and maybe a really significant live driver like Truex or Harvick or or Kyle Busch or Kyle Larson. Somebody like that who's maybe starting in the mid-half upper uh, tens or top 12 or something like that could sneak in some dominator performance if they have a really good car and maybe just a a little bit of a subpar qualifying position. But that's kind of what I'd lean towards for, for dominators. So the major factors that go in, obviously are starting position and then uh, performance in the last 12 races, quality pass percentage or driver rating that kind of hi- correlate super highly at mile and a half tracks. Uh, the last 12 uh, fastest laps. So drivers that have been faster over the past 12 non-restrictor plate races. And then the track type, either driver rating or quality pass percentage. My model is giving quality pass percentage, but it correlates so highly with driver rating here that you could use either one. Uh, so, Last 12 overall, uh, the last eight of mile and a half tracks, and then also fastest laps of the last 12 races and then starting position.
2: And what stats are you looking at to
0: gauge overall driver performance? Kind of similar. Uh, That's because it's just your typical mile and a half, right? So uh, in this case, we're also going to add in long run practice speed, so your 10-lap average. If you don't have the 10-lap average, we've only got 15 cars that ran a 10-lap average in final practice. Do the combined average practice speed, uh, which will be obviously the best laps from first and second practice. Uh, NBC, so we talked about this for Chicagoland, um, before the Chicagoland pod, NBC has started taking over a portion of the schedule, or, or this second half of the schedule, I should say, uh, and they've actually been showing overall average practice speed in final practice, which is all of your laps combined, what was your average practice speed? So that might not be consecutive laps, uh, you know, might come in, get new tires, make some changes to your car, but it is a useful statistic. So you can check that out as well. If you want to kind of replace, uh, some of the drivers that don't have 10 lap runs, you can use their overall average final practice speed. If, uh, you can go get those from usually they're posted to Twitter or you can replay the uh, practice session on, uh, like NBCSports.com Uh, if you, if you have access to that. So, um, Use your long-run practice speed when you got it. Otherwise, some kind of combined or average speeds. Uh, then, of course, driver rating this year uh, or over the last 12 non-restrictor plate races. Either way, it's 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 basically the same thing. And then track type as well. In, in this case, my model uses track type finishing position, and I think that's because of the high DNF rate. Uh, it actually, you know, certain drivers just do have a higher DNF rate, which lowers their average finish. So track type, so the large oval uh, finishing position goes into the model as well.
2: Okay. And, uh, what is the predictability of the model?
0: Yeah. So a little lower this weekend than most of your mile and a half. It's only around 0. 0.6. Uh, most of your mile and a half get up towards 0. 0.65, so a little lower than most of you mile and a half. Uh, that said, it's still a mile and a half. It still ends up generally being pretty predictable. Uh, but it's not like, you know, Chicagoland two weekends ago where it was 0. 0.75 uh, or some of these other tracks that can get 0. 0.6, 0. 0.66, 0. 0.675, uh, or sorry, 0. 0.65, 675 in that neighborhood. This is down towards the 0. 0.6 range.
2: Okay. And uh, with the high incident rate uh, in a model that is a little more uncertain than some of the other, one-and-a-half-mile tracks. How are you approaching GPPs this weekend?
0: Yeah, I mean, like I said, you can fade practice times a little bit. Uh, Obviously, with a high incident rate, that means ownership percentages. You can leverage a little bit more. We do know that dominators do tend to be pretty chalky, though. So I like a chalky dominator strategy and then mixing up, as we talked about earlier, those mid- and lower-tier drivers with a higher incident rate that does also bring in your Joder cheap tier into play somewhat more than, for example, Chicagoland. I don't think I played many Joder cheap drivers at Chicagoland. Uh, we're kind of considering Joe Dirt 5,500 and below, whereas we used to consider it 6k and below, but since NASCAR kind of changed their, or drafting, as you say, changed the NASCAR pricing structure, we're really considering it like 5,500 or below 5,500. So you can use some of those drivers a little bit more this weekend than for example, Chicagoland, where I don't think I used a driver under 5,500 at all. Uh, maybe I did in like one lineup or something, but, uh, one of those five X lineups, but I I think that would be it. Whereas here you definitely can use them a lot more. Also, like I said, I like mixing and matching those uh, tiers of, of priced drivers that you can maybe say have kind of similar range of outcomes Uh, go with the one that might be lower owned. I think that's a a really nice GPP strategy this weekend.
2: Okay. Let's talk a little bit about practice times, uh, drivers, teams, manufacturers, what has stood out to you so far this weekend uh, in terms of first and second practice speed?
0: I think you're going to be shocked here, but uh, it seems like, you know, the Fords and uh, the Toyotas are the top two teams. <laughs> the Chevys still seem to be, you know, lagging a little bit in terms of long run speed. Now, obviously, there's some Chevys kind of towards the top of the board in single lap speed in final practice. But, you know, Daryl Walls Jr. was making a qualifying run, and we have seen qualifying speed from the Chevys. We just haven't quite seen the race speed from the Chevys. Uh, other than Kyle Larson and and lo and behold, of course, Kyle Larson is right there in sixth of the 15 cars in 10 lap average. And he went the latest in the session of anybody. Uh, but other than that, yeah, I mean, as far as practice times, you're looking at Fords and... Chevys, uh, or sorry, Fords and Toyotas. Uh, What I do think is interesting about practice times this weekend for the long run speed, uh, if you just look at the 15 cars that made a 10 lap average, you don't really notice a separation of whether cars went earlier in the session or later in the session. I think it's just kind of we hit the hot point of the day, and uh, it didn't really matter if you went earlier and later. The track was just so hot and slick uh, that uh, it it didn't really matter if you went earlier in the session or later in the session. There's definitely a mix of of later and earlier uh, 10 lap runs. So. uh, you know, maybe maybe there was a little bit of uh, an advantage to going later if it cooled down just a bit, but I, I really don't think so. So, um, yeah, I mean, other than that, I mean, the, you know, the top cars, the top Chevys are Kyle Larson. Like I said, is sixth out of the fifteen. Jamie McMurray is uh, ninth out of fifteen, and he's of course Kyle Larson's teammate. And then Ryan Newman is uh, tenth out of the fifteen cars. So. Uh, you know, that's only 15 cars, but you're talking 6, 9, and, and 10. That's not that great. Uh, you know, looking at the top, you got Hamlin, Blaney, Harvick, Kozlowski, Suarez. So there is some good uh, Toyota performance this weekend. I think uh, that's pretty interesting to note just because um, I don't know if that necessarily puts Ford a tier above Toyota this weekend, whereas I think generally the whole year, Fords have been better.
2: You know, uh, I know you don't have this information, uh, you know, right in hand or off the top of your head, but... Uh, Just in terms of, like, sports betting uh, and and thinking about, um, you know, placing futures bets or, like, you know, bets to win on any of these races. Um, If all you had done was just bet some of, like, the the top Fords and the top Toyotas and basically faded the Chevys, would you you be profitable this year?
0: Yeah, I'm sure you would be. Uh, You know, I could – I could quickly go through here and find the top uh, Chevy finishers in mile and a half this year or maybe like the non weird tracks. So like if you consider the restrictor plates, the road courses uh, and then like the short tracks like Martinsville and Bristol's like a little weird. But if you just consider like the large, well, even if I just use the large ovals and uh, filter out everything but this year, let's find the top, you know, Chevy finishers. I bet there's not too many. Uh, I have to go down – other than Kyle Larson, I think. If you make an exception for Kyle Larson, uh, you got Jamie McMurray, did finish third at at, uh, Texas. But then you kind of have to scroll down until you get to Jimmy Johnson finished uh, fifth at Charlotte. But if you think about that, that means there have been – just at the large ovals, there have been 40 top five finishers this year. So there's been eight races, five top five finishers. Only uh, Larson, who's done it a few times – and then McMurray once and Jimmy Johnson once are the only Chevys that have finished inside the top five. So I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I think it, it's really just a mix of of the top Fords and occasionally some Toyotas. You know, you've got uh, obviously a lot of Kyle Busch in there, and actually he makes he and he and Truex, I should say, make up the first one, two, three, four, five, uh, six, seven, <laughs> uh, eight first eight top finishes of Toyotas this year. And so you get to Denny Hamlin who had a third place finish as well. Um, Or I guess you could say like first six, because then there's a a few third place finishers there with Hamlin and then Bush. Uh, So yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a pretty chalky year at the mile and a half. And uh, I think you're right. If you, if you go with the Fords and then the top Toyota driver, you know, you don't expect Eric Jones, really. You don't expect Daniel Suarez, really. And then obviously none of the other Toyota teams are really top teams here uh, in NASCAR to to have super performance. So you're really just saying like Hamlin and Bush are the only guys that of Toyota guys that have a real chance of finishing top three. You know, occasionally Eric Jones could. He, he has a fourth place finish this year at a mile and a half. Uh, but other than that, I mean, yeah, it's basically been the Ford and the top tier Toyota show at mile and a half this year.
2: Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit. So Ford has been the top manufacturer, Toyota's next. And then again, really only Kyle Larson uh, for the Chevys. Uh, Is any of that set to change this weekend in terms of your analysis of practice times? Or or do we think that that is a trend, uh, given that we are pretty well into the season, a trend that is going to continue for the rest of the season?
0: Yeah. I mean, we're halfway through the season now. And, uh, you know, at this time last year, Toyota had introduced their new car and about race 10, 11, nine, 10, 11, somewhere in that point, they really start the rest of the field and surpassing the rest of the field when they'd introduced their new car. We haven't seen that, you know, from, uh, from the Chevys this year, I'm pulling up, you know, the Chicago results here, uh, which is our last mile and a half oval. And, you know, you got Kyle Busch first, Kyle Larson second, which is the Chevy we've been talking about. The next Chevy was Alex Bowman in 10th. So, only two Chevys in the top ten, and really the second Chevy was tenth, so only one in the top nine, and it was the guy we've been seeing all year, Kyle Larson. So I, there's no indication uh, that these teams are catching up. These Chevys are catching up. Uh, Hendrick Motorsports, or uh, for example, Richard Childress Racing, or its affiliates with you know JTG and uh, uh, Casey Kane and uh, Casey Kane's team there, and uh, Bubba Wallace's team at Richard Petty, they're affiliates with RCR. Uh, oh, and then also Jamie McMurray has kind of been maybe like right up there with the Hendrick tier of drivers, finishing occasionally, maybe sporadically in the top 10, but mostly like a top 15 type driver uh, like Jimmy Johnson and, and, and Bowman and, and uh, Chase Elliott have kind of been this year. So not been a good year for the Chevys, and uh, it doesn't look like it's set to continue after Chicagoland. And I haven't seen anything in the practice times other than, of course, Kyle Larson uh, to indicate it's set to change this weekend.
2: Okay. Uh, is there uh, going to be a road of his live this weekend?
0: Yep, absolutely. So uh, I'll record it tomorrow morning, probably eight, 9am tomorrow morning. I'll record it, which means within an, an hour, it needs to, you know, obviously process and upload to YouTube. Uh, and then I need to post it on the, the road of com slash live page. So probably between 9am and 10am is when it'll be posted uh, Pacific time, which still gives plenty of time. I think that's six hours, six and a half hours before lineup lock. So plenty of time. Uh, but make sure you get your questions in tonight, overnight, because I will re- be recording shortly after I, you know, get coffeeed up in the morning, uh, and uh, I'll just go straight to recording Road of His live and updating the ownership percentage projections uh, in in the morning.
2: Okay, that is going to do it for this NASCAR edition of On the Daily for Nick Kiffin on Twitter at Rotodoc. I'm Matt Friedman, Matt at the Oracle. Thanks for tuning in.